turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16 today. And as you're turning there, one of the things that I um, most loved about doing campus ministry is that students are always asking questions, especially Berkeley students. They love to ask the hard questions about, about God and faith and belief. Uh, questions like, you know, we live in such a pluralistic society. And there are so many other religious approaches, and there's so many there's so many good people who adhere to those religious approaches. How could Jesus claim to be the only way? Or uh, questions like, you know, how could a good God allow such suffering? Uh, questions like, how do we know that we can actually trust the Bible? And uh, you know, maybe you're asking similar questions this morning. Can I just tell you, we all have questions. Even pastors have questions. Pastors wrestle through these things. And what I love about the scriptures is that it is constantly exhorting us to take our questions to God. God is not afraid of our questions, but here's what I want you to think about this morning is that questions are a two-way street. So it's not just that we have questions for God about God, but God actually has some questions for you. So when you read the Gospels, Jesus is constantly asking questions. Who do you say that I am? Why are you so afraid? Uh, Why do you you doubt? And in our text this morning, I think we come to what is perhaps the most strange and shocking and perplexing question that Jesus ever asked. So let me invite you to follow along as I read. And let me remind you that this is God's word given to us because he he loves us. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Let's take just a moment to pray. Father, you alone have the words of life. And so we ask for your help this morning. You know, every single one of us in this room, whether we're convinced of the things that we've been saying and praying, praying, 
or whether we're unconvinced of the things that we've been seeing and praying. You know whether we are bored with life, excited about life. Father, some of us are just exhausted from life. Some of us in this room this morning are grieving deeply. We need you and we need the words of life that you alone can give. So would you come and speak to us? Would you, would you use this word? Would you use me? Would you, would you work Holy Spirit and bring life, bring healing to us? We pray this through Christ. Amen. Do you want to be healed? Why does Jesus ask this question? I mean, how strange, how unnecessary, how, how rude, you might even say, to, to, to stare a man into the eyes who has been helplessly disabled for 38 years and ask him, do you want to be healed? I mean, isn't the answer obvious? I want us to sit in this question this morning because Jesus is not, he's not just asking it of this man, but he's asking it of you. Do you want to be healed? In many ways, it is the defining question of our lives. And I would contend to you this morning that while the answer seems obvious, the reason Jesus asked it is because it's not. <laughs> Do you want to be healed? There, there are three truths we're going to look at from this passage. Three truths that must sink into your life in order to be healed. Here's the first. Truth number one, we are not well. Nice to meet you. You are not well. I am not well. When Jesus asks the question, do you want to be healed? It is a not so subtle suggestion that we need to be. It's a not-so-subtle suggestion that something has gone terribly wrong with humanity, that we are sick. And if you have trouble believing this, then I want to invite you to my house, okay? The next time you're in the Bay Area, come to my house, because in my house, we have these things called children. And uh, I, have, I have three of them, but my two youngest, Lucy and Rosie, Lucy is five, Rosie is three, several months ago, they got into a little argument because Rosie was playing with one of Lucy's toys. And Lucy did not want Rosie to play with one of her toys. And so I said to Rosie, Rosie, you have to give the toy back. And then you ask for a turn, right? And so for a three-year-old, this is like the end of the world, you know, on the ground, flailing. Like, is, is the sun going to even rise tomorrow, okay? And, uh, but I was so proud of Rosie because she kind of rallied. Right. And through this real moment of tenderness, like through sniffling tears, she walks up to her older sister and she says she hands her the toy and she says, Lucy, can I have a turn after you? And I'm thinking, like, is anybody recording this right now? This is I should write a parenting book. Right. And uh, is anybody getting this on camera? Um, And so Lucy proceeds to take the toy from Rosie And then she leans in real close. I mean, she just gets, can never have a turn. (laughs) I mean, what is wrong with us? Like, here's the deal. You know, no one has trained them or educated them in the skill of selfishness. I mean, it is just there from the start, ingrained in them. And adults, 
big kids, it's in us too. We're just a little taller. In fact, in many ways, the older you get, you just, you just kind of grow in your sophistication to disguise it. We are not well. For as much as we want to insist, this is a big cultural value of our day, for as much as we want to insist that humanity is inherently good, I, I think deep down we know otherwise. And in fact, even some of the most secular scholars and writers and thinkers in our society today believe this. They acknowledge this to be true. Let me give you one example. A man named George Sanders. George Sanders is a famous American writer. He's not a Christian. Several years ago, he gave a commencement speech at Syracuse University in which he had some pretty brutally, brutally honest things to say about the human condition. Okay? Now, this speech, it went viral. It was featured on NPR. It was reprinted in the New York Times. And for over a week, it was the most shared article in the country. And in the speech, he was asking one question. Here's the question. What's wrong with humanity? That's what he was trying to answer. And this is what Saunders said. He said, I think each of us is born with a series of built-in confusions. These are, number one, there's three of them. We think we're central to the universe, that our personal story is the main and most interesting story. Number two, we think we're separate from the universe. There's us and then out there, all that other stuff like dogs and swing sets and the state of Nebraska and low-hanging clouds and, you know, other people. And three, we think we're permanent. We think death is a reality that doesn't apply to us. And then he concludes this way. He says, now we don't really, we don't really believe these three things. Intellectually, we know better, but we believe them viscerally and we live by them and they cause us to prioritize our own needs over the needs of others. There's a confusion in each of us. It's a sickness. His words. And it's called selfishness. Now, what is Saunders saying? You know what he's saying? The same thing that Jesus is saying. That you cannot escape the infirmity of the human condition. We are sick. Look at this man in John 5. There is no doubt that he is sick. He's physically sick. He's been unable to walk for 38 years. He's psychologically sick. He's a poor beggar. You know what that means? It means that he is unnoticed and disregarded by society. People walk by him and they don't see him. Number three, he's relationally sick. He says to Jesus in verse seven, look at this. He says, Jesus, I have no one. You know what that is in the Greek? No one. I have no one. Even his family and his friends have abandoned him. And and most significantly, he's spiritually sick. His main problem is not his legs or his circumstances, but his heart. And so Jesus says to him in verse 14, after he heals him, he says, See, you are well again. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. What is Jesus saying here? Let Let me say what Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying that there is a one-to-one correlation between sin and suffering. That if you do something wrong, God is just waiting to make life go sideways for you. No, you know what Jesus is doing? He is warning this man against the danger 
of becoming content with his physical healing, but becoming oblivious to the deeper sickness of his heart, which is the cancer of sin and life apart from God. So here's the point. This man is sick and he knows it. He knows he is sick. He knows his condition. He knows his need. He knows he is not well. And the question for you this morning is, do you know this to be true of you? Do you have the courage and the honesty to see yourself in this man? You see, I'm just going to go out on a limb here, but I think probably for many of us in this room, that's actually a hard thing to see. You know why? Because many of us in this room are highly educated, highly successful, and well put together on the outside. And you know what that does? It blinds you to your need. It blinds you to your sickness. And so this is why Jesus asked you this morning, do you want to be healed? Because in order to be healed, you have to know that you need to be. That's the first truth that has to sink in. Here's the second. We seek healing in all the wrong places. We are not well. We seek healing in all the wrong places. I want you to notice where this man is when Jesus finds him. He's by a pool outside the temple in Jerusalem. And there alongside him are a multitude of the blind and the paralyzed and the desperately ill. And the question is, why are they there? Why are these particular people at this particular pool? And this is actually really fascinating because if you look back at your Bible, one of the things that you'll notice is that verse 4 is not in the text. It goes from verse 3 to verse 5. Now, I'm from South Carolina originally, okay? And we tend to rank very low in education. But I do know this. Four comes between three and five. Okay, give me some credit, all right? And verse 4 is not in the text. Why is verse 4 not in the text? Well, scholars agree that verse 4 was not in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts. Scholars also agree that verse 4 is incredibly helpful and helping us understand the cultural background for why these people are at this pool. So let me read verse 4 for you. Here it is. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease they had. They believed that this pool could make them well. And so many, just like this man in our text today, came to this pool day after day, many of them for decades, hoping and wanting and wishing to be healed, only to have their hopes dashed time and time again. And as modern people, you might hear that and think, you know, how silly. I mean, how sad, how futile to think that dipping your body into a public cesspool could be the answer to all of your problems. I mean, thank goodness that, we are, that we're more modern in, in our belief, more modern in our understanding of the world. And yet, I mean, and yet, some of us believe that if we could just add another zero onto the end of our net worth, then we'd finally feel like we have enough. Some of us believe that if we could acquire enough status, then we'd finally feel like we are enough. Some of us believe that if we could just have a lower number on the waistband of our clothing, then we will finally feel beautiful enough. I mean, if you think about it, our life is just kind of a series of moving from one pool to the next, right? If, if I could get into the right school, 
Some of you are thinking about college. If I could just get into the right school. If I could just get the right degree. If I could just get the right job. If I could just find the right spouse. If I could just have the right kids. If I could just make the right amount of money. If I could just take the right vacations. If I could just have the right retirement account. That it would somehow satiate our deepest longings for meaning and joy. We have our pools. We look to so many other things to heal us. By the way, this is why we often run to our addictions. Because we see them as salves to our pain. We, we have our pools. And, and they're just as futile. And they're just as sad. I mean, get this. You can even use religion and morality to try and make you well. Did you catch this at the end of the passage in verse 16? The religious leaders are upset because this man picking up his mat was a violation of the Sabbath. You see, rules, rules, rules. We follow the rules. We're the good people. We're the religious people. We have the right political views. We have the right social views. We have the right moral views. And this is what makes us whole. I mean, you can look to all sorts of things. But just like this man, we seek healing in all the wrong places. We go to the same pools day after day, many of us for decades, hoping and wanting and wishing to be healed, only to have our hopes dashed time and time again. And the million-dollar question is, why? Why do we keep going to the same? I mean, do you ever, do you ever that moment where you just kind of look in the mirror and you think, why can I not change? Why do I keep doing what I'm doing? I mean, I know it doesn't work. Why are we so content with our failed strategies? I think there's a lot of answers to that question. Let me give you what I think is one of the main ones. It's this. Real healing is not a painless process. It's not a painless process. So one of my, my favorite scenes from the Chronicles of Narnia comes from the voyage of the Don Treader, where Eustace, who's a young boy, has been turned into a dragon because of his selfish and stubborn behavior. And all he wants is to become a boy again. Do you know this scene? All he wants is to become a boy again. And so he tries doing everything that he can to take these scales off, to heal himself. And all of his efforts of self-healing are futile until finally Aslan looks at him and he says, Eustace, you will have to let me heal you. And then Eustace recalls the experience this way. He says, I was so afraid of his claws, but I was desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. But the cure had begun. Real healing is not a painless process. It's like a broken bone that has to be reset in order to be made well. Or or put it to you this way. The cure always has implications. The cure always has implications. That was true for this man in John 5. You see, for a, a poor beggar could actually lose a decent living, a decent wage by being made well. It's true for this man and it's true for you. Cure always has implications. There will be moments 
in your life, and you might even be in one of these moments right now where it feels like God is withholding things from you. Good things. And God doesn't give them to you. And you will be tempted to think that it's because God is against you. But it's just the opposite. It's, just, it's because God is for you. And he is so for you that he is weaning you off of your faults and futile remedies. And like a lion clawing into your heart, the cut will be deep. But it is the cut of a wise and gracious surgeon who cuts you not to hurt you, but to heal you. See, r- real healing is not a painless process because we, we, we seek healing in all the wrong places. And that brings us to the third truth that has to sink in. We are not well. We seek healing in all the wrong places. Number three, real healing is found in Jesus. Real healing is found in Jesus. This man, did you notice this? He says to Jesus, Jesus, I've got no one to get me into this pool. I mean, if you could just get me into this pool, if you could just help me into that pool, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He shows this man that he does not need someone to help him into the pool. He needs someone to replace the pool, to make the pool Obsolete, And that is what Jesus came to do for this man and for you. He is the great physician who has been healing people for millennia. Why is real healing found in Jesus? It's found in Jesus because Jesus knows our sickness. He knows it to the core. Right, this man in this story, did you catch this? He did not know who Jesus was. Even after the healing, he still did not know who it was that had healed him. But Jesus knew this man. Verse 6 says that when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew he had been there a long time. Jesus knew all 38 years of his longing to be made well. All 38 years of his groaning And the same is true for you. He knows all of your affliction. He knows all of your heartache. He knows all of your pain. He knows all of the ways that others have wounded you. And he knows all of the ways that you have wounded others. He knows all your sickness. He knows your physical sickness. He knows your psychological sickness. He knows your relational sickness. He knows your spiritual sickness. But he doesn't just know our sickness. Jesus moves towards us. In our sickness. So often in the Christian life, there's this disconnect between what we feel and what we know, between our heart and between our head. So, for example, I know that God loves me, but it doesn't always feel that way. You relate to that? Doesn't always feel that way, especially in my worst moments. There's something in us that is deeply suspicious of God's love. And what we see in this passage is that the love of God is so great and is so constant and it is so unconditional that it always meets us where we are, not where we should be. Think about this. Who is around this pool? Broken people. You know who is not around this pool? People who think they have it all together. No, it's Broken, needy, messy, and messed up people. And that is why Jesus is there. 
That's who Jesus came for. Jesus, Jesus says it this way. He says, I have not come. Uh, I've not, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come for the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. Jesus always moves towards us in our sickness, but he doesn't just know our sickness. He doesn't just move towards us in our sickness. Real healing is found in Jesus because he takes our sickness upon himself. Like this man in this story, we are prone to look up at God and say, God, you don't get what it's like to be me. Okay, you might, you, you don't get my affliction. You don't get my suffering. You might know about it. You're aware of it. But you haven't lived it. You haven't experienced it. There's a story told of a Christian missionary in the 19th century who went to live amongst and minister amongst a colony of lepers on an island. He shows up and for 15 years he labors amongst these people. And they want nothing to do with him. Nothing to do with him and nothing to do with the gospel that he's proclaiming. Gets to the point where he, after 15 years, he grows so discouraged that he decides to leave. And as he goes to get on the boat to leave the island, he looks down at his hand and what does he see but a spot, a leper's spot. He's contracted the disease. And at that point, he has two options. He can either go home or he can go back. And he decides that despite the fact it may be utterly fruitless to return, he goes back to the island where for the next four years... He gives himself to these people until he dies at the ripe young age of 49. Now, here's the thing. When he went back, it was an entirely different story. To his surprise, actually, the church grew. There are thousands of conversions. And you see, the question is, why the change? Why the change? I mean, it wasn't working before. But now, all of a sudden, there's fruit And God's working, and these people are embracing this. Why the change? You know why the change? Because they saw the spot. They saw the spot before they were talking to a man who could not empathize with what they were going through. He hadn't lived it. He hadn't experienced it. But now he had become one of them. He could identify with their ailment, with their weakness, with their poverty, with their isolation, with their sorrow. And that, friends, is a picture of the Christian gospel. God becomes one of us. We think God doesn't get what it's like to be us. And God says, that's exactly why I came. Was to become one of you. To identify with your weakness. With your poverty. With your isolation. With your sorrow. With your sickness. No other religion has a God who says anything like this. A God who left his comfort and his glory and his world to come to ours. A God who came and lived amongst us. A God who understands life in a broken world from the inside out. A God who can empathize, not just sympathize, but empathize with everything that you are experiencing and will ever experience. A God who, at the climax of his life, became just like this man in John 5. Who on the cross was physically sick, 
His body was broken and crushed. He was psychologically sick. He died a nobody's death. Crucifixion was a form of execution that was reserved for the most disgraceful. He was relationally sick. He had no one. All of his family and friends turned away. And he was spiritually sick. Who on the cross took the weight of our ultimate sickness upon himself, which is the cancer of sin and life apart from God. Why? You know why? So that you could be healed. So that you could be healed. This, I love the way that John Calvin puts this. He says, Jesus is uniquely suited to deal with our infirmities because in his humanity, he is able to empathize to our sickness. But with his divinity, he's able to heal it. Or as another church father said, Jesus became what we are so that he might make us what he is. He took our sickness upon himself so that we could be healed. So we could be physically healed. So that people with broken bodies, bodies, bodies that will not get better in this world. Could have the certain hope and promise of one day a new body. A restored body, a healed body, a body that is free from decay and disease and death. So that we can be psychologically healed. So that people who have been ravaged by shame and guilt could know that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So that we could be relationally healed. So that people who come from broken homes and broken relationships could have a new family. You know what that's called? It's called the church. And God gives us this meal to eat and drink together. And he gives us a new resource to love others and forgive others because we have first been loved and so greatly forgiven. And so that we could be spiritually healed. So that people who have been wrecked by the cancer of sin and God's judgment, which we stand under, could be reconciled and restored to the one who made you and most loves you. Do you want to be healed? The invitation for you this morning, whether you have been a Christian for decades or whether you're not a Christian, The invitation is the same. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. He is willing and able to heal you. And he is the only one who will not leave you hoping and wanting and wishing only to have your hopes dashed time and time again. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we thank you this morning for your patience. For the ways that you see us running from pool to pool. 
And yet your response is not to throw your hands up in the air. It's not to walk away from us in disgust. But it's to come from heaven to earth. To bring the remedy of the gospel. And to heal us. And so would you, would you change us this week? Help us to see our pools. Help us to see you as the true pool, the living waters of life. We pray this through Christ. Amen.